Hello and welcome to the Psych Summaries podcast. My name is Hannah and I will be having conversations with clinicians, academics and experts that have applications to the field of psychology and mental health. They have many years of experience, meaning they are trusted voices in niche subjects. But I invite you to consume the content with a critical perspective, since a one-size-fits-all approach rarely applies to mental health. I hope you learn something and enjoy listening. Today I am chatting to Dr. Ryan Martin, aka The Anger Professor, who researches the psychology behind anger. We discuss the physiological and biological underpinnings of anger, how it may differ in adolescence across the lifespan, cross-culturally, and so much more. It's really refreshing to hear about how to utilise anger in a constructive way and learn about how and why it plays out in modern society. As well, as how to use it as a strategy to create change. So welcome Ryan, thank you for joining us on Psych Summaries this week. Please can we start with an introduction to yourself and your work? Yeah, so I am Dr. Ryan Martin. I'm a psychologist and anger researcher at the University of Wisconsin Green Bay. My background is in counseling psychology, so I have a a PhD in counseling psych from the University of Southern Mississippi. I have been studying anger for 20 plus years now. That was rooted largely in my interest, both personal and kind of professional interest in, in the emotion. When I was in college, I worked with a lot of at risk adolescents at a juvenile shelter in Minnesota. And you know, one of the things I noticed, most of those kids seemed to have a real difficult time controlling their anger, and it was getting them into a lot of trouble. Truthfully, a couple things about that. First, you know, those kids actually had a lot to be angry about. And that's one of the things that I discovered sort of as I was thinking through and learning about this. And yeah, their anger was getting them into trouble a lot at school and at home, but it it came from a a place of having really been treated poorly, sometimes by their parents, sometimes by the school system, sometimes by siblings. These particular kids had had a very, very, very hard life. And it was understandable that they were as angry as they were. And it was understandable, frankly, given that they're kids, that they they weren't necessarily handling it and expressing it very well. The other thing I'd say is that my interest in anger actually stemmed even earlier than that in that I came from a home where I had a wonderful family. It always sounds worse than it is when I describe it, but I did have an angry father. He didn't usually take that out on me. He had a very short temper. He was sort of famous for having a short temper. And so I saw him explode, maybe too strong a word, but, you know, get angry often. And it caused a bit of a rift in our relationship for a long time. You know, I was kind of often nervous around him kind of worried that he was going to explode. It was was that sort of tendency to walk on eggshells a little bit. And so that really drove a lot of my my interest as well. Wow. So you've got a lot of personal experience, but also professional. It's incredible that you can look at it from different angles as well. First things first, is anger a state or a trait? That's a really, really good question. I'm glad you started with that because ultimately we can we can think about it in both ways. So I, 
I'm going to start by saying that, you know, anger itself, the kind of anger we're talking about is an emotion. So it's a state, right? And it's a state that everybody experiences from time to time. In fact, most of the research we have says that people experience it, you know, a couple times a day, just certainly a couple times a week. And so it's a really common emotional state that people experience a lot like fear or sadness or happiness or, or guilt, jealousy, and so on. That said, we oftentimes think about it as also being a trait and that there are some people for whom they just experience or are more likely to experience anger throughout their, throughout their day or their life. They have this propensity to become angry. And so we refer to that as trait anger, essentially, when people have that tendency, when they're more likely than others to snap, when they're more likely to experience some of those extreme forms of anger. We can think about it both ways, that it is an emotion, but people who experience that emotion most often, we tend to think of as having like an angry personality or, or having being high on trait anger, we often call it. You can think about it synonymous to other emotions like, like fear, like we know fear is, a, is an emotion, but there are some people who are more anxious than others, who are just more likely to experience fear than others. And those are people that you might describe as having sort of a hot, being high on trait anxiety or trait fear. Does the research tell us how high levels of anger affects us long term? Is it more associated with or causal to stress or anxiety? And on the back of that, I was wondering what methods are actually used in this research? Is it self-report? Because obviously we have a tendency maybe to not report honestly so right yeah this is one of the limitations of the research is that a lot of it is going to be self-report and that brings with it a, a lot of different problems one you you alluded to which is people not necessarily being honest about it but the other one that i think is actually even in some ways more a more insidious problem is people not really being aware uh, of some of those consequences so you know I'll, I'll go back to the example with my dad like i bet he never really knew how I felt about it. I bet he didn't know that there was this relationship rift that was happening because I didn't tell him. And so there's a sense there. It's really easy to kind of look at that and say, okay, if my dad were filling out this self-report form, he wouldn't indicate that there were relationship problems as a result of this because he wasn't aware of them. So going back to your, to the bigger question, what are some of those consequences we know that the consequences of, of people who are chronically angry are vast and they are, they're a broad array of consequences. So we actually, we have this questionnaire called the Anger Consequences Questionnaire, and it, it measures the types of common consequences people have. And it, it looks at things that some of them are going to be pretty obvious, like physical fights or verbal fights, uh, relationship damage. Property damage is another pretty common one. So consistently breaking things, either yours or someone else's. Physiological consequences are, are definitely there. So mostly cardiovascular problems. So stroke and heart disease and things like that. But actually muscle tension is another one that can lead to you know, migraines, can lead to neck and back pain, uh, things like that. So we see a host of consequences like that. Some of the more 
unexpected or uh, types of problems that you see or some that people don't talk about as much, substance abuse or, or even just chronic substance use. So maybe it doesn't cross that threshold, but it's the substances are more used as a coping mechanism. Certainly road rage and, and driving anger is another really common one. Other negative emotions can be pretty common. So sometimes when people are chronically angry, they they start to experience a lot of sadness or a lot of guilt or fear. One of the best examples of that that I can think of is I had a, a client once. The pattern was pretty simple, and it actually sounds a lot like the sort of pattern of abuse of him treating his girlfriend poorly, never being physically abusive, but certainly being emotionally abusive. And then he would feel profoundly guilty and profoundly sad afterwards. And, you know, he, he sort of hated this about himself. He hated the way he treated her in the moment, being unable to stop himself from getting angry with her and, and saying mean things. And then, and then feeling this intense sadness and guilt afterwards. And, you know, and, and so it was the, the anger seemed like this primary problem. And then it was leading to this, the secondary emotion of guilt and sadness along with that relationship difficulty. So tons and tons and tons of different types of consequences. And people tend to think really narrowly about them. They tend to think just about the, the physical fights or the verbal fights and, and uh, maybe the property damage or the driving, but not some of those other broader consequences. I think as well, people think about emotions as just thoughts and behaviors that come from that, i.e. shouting or crying, but actually the fact that it can impact your physical health I think people will be quite surprised to hear about. I was wondering if you could clarify the difference between anger and other things like you mentioned temper earlier and aggression and how many disorders anger is a part of whether it might be a predictor of those disorders or early warning sign at least? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so let, let's both really good questions. The, the first one, anger and aggression, um, is a really important distinction that I think people oftentimes misunderstand. I think it's one of the spots that's really confusing to people when it comes to, to what anger is and what it's not. So anger is an emotion and it ends up being the the, the spectrum of feelings anywhere from sort of the mild frustration you feel when you, you know, can't find something you're looking for or when your, you know, phone isn't working properly or whatever, all the way to the just intense rage you might feel when you're really taken advantage of or someone treats you poorly. It's that whole spectrum of feelings, but it's just the feelings. So it's not the behaviors often associated with it is separate from those. And again, if we think about this in terms of emotions, we might think about and talk about more often, it's sort of a, anger is to fear as aggression is to flight. You know, that flight or fleeing something you're scared of is a common behavioral response to fear and aggression is a common behavioral response to anger. But aggression is just the behaviors. It's not the feeling state. It's a behavior uh, specifically where the intent is to hurt someone or something. Now it could be verbal, it could be physical, and it's often motivated by anger. It's not the same as anger and it's not always motivated by anger, right? There are instances where people are aggressive and it's, you know, 
for sports, right? Hunting is a good example of that. Or military violence, things like that are instances where the aggression is motivated typically by something other than anger that's driving it. And at the same time, anger often motivates or leads to a host of other types of behaviors that aren't violent or aren't aggressive. As far as disorders, and specifically, I'm thinking of the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, like where does anger appear? Uh, it is first, I would say it's sort of tragically and frustratingly uh, omitted from the DSM. It just it isn't there as often as it should be, and it isn't there as its own disorder in a meaningful way. Some of the places that we will see it include depression. And even there, it's it's listed, you know, the word anger isn't used, but irritability is. Interestingly, it, it specifically mentions irritability in children. So not like sort of recognizing that, you know, kids may, kids who are depressed or who are struggling with, with sadness might not express sadness, but express irritability or frustration. We see it being listed in a couple of different personality disorders. So borderline personality disorder is, is probably the most well-known there. We see it listed also with antisocial personality disorder as well. So it's, you see it there a few times. So there's uh, certainly probably the, maybe the best example of a quote unquote anger disorder, though I would, I would argue it's still way too limited is intermittent explosive disorder which is more of an aggression disorder than it is an anger disorder, but anger is listed there as, a, as an example. So those are some of the places that we see it showing up. It, it's worth noting though, it's, it's always as a symptom or usually as a symptom and not sort of the main disorder. It, it's not described itself as the, the sort of central feature of very many disorders in the DSM. Okay, so anger is an emotion and aggression and temper and things that come they are the behaviors that manifest from the emotion I don't know if you're going to know the answer to this one but is anger or our response of anger anything to do with our genetics I mean hearing you talk about your dad being angry I'm intrigued to know if you would say you're an angry person but what does the research show yeah, so there is going to be a component of it that is genetic. Specifically, where that manifests itself is, I guess, probably up for debate a little bit. I think we could we could point to specific structures of the brain that might be influenced by this. One is the the amygdala. It's this little itty bitty emotional computer deep in our brain initiates emotional responses. We know that genetics can lead to an overactive amygdala for people who experience fear. So it would follow that, that you might see that for anger as well. We also know that like one of the structures of the brain that's associated with impulse control is our prefrontal cortex. It's the, the structures up here near the, near the front of our brain. And that prefrontal cortex you know, might be less or more active in particular people. Now, the question that where this gets a little challenging is whether or not this is uh, genetics or, uh, you know, I guess nature versus nurture, if we want to dichotomize that way. I mean, ultimately it's, it's both, right. It's going to be a gene by environment interaction. We also know that kids tend to learn how to express their emotions from their caregivers. And so they, they look to their caregivers to see when is it appropriate to 
cry, when is it appropriate to flee, when is it appropriate to be aggressive or to swear or anything like that. And so people pick up on those things from their caregivers that way. So there's a little bit of both involved, but it, it would be it would be incorrect to say that genetics plays no role, but it would be also be incorrect to say it's the biggest and most important thing. Yeah, I mean, I guess of anything relating to our health and our character, it's always going to be a combination, isn't it? There's not right. going to just be one one factor that has led to an onset of a response. Right. It was interesting, though, hearing you talk about its association with the prefrontal cortex, because I know that there's a lot of research into adolescence and how that develops a bit later than we first thought. And I wondered, actually, off the back of that, do we see more anger in adolescence than later life? Yeah, we do. And and for the exact reason you're describing, you know, adolescence is a really interesting time because I think... For a long time, we sort of blew the emotional traumas of adolescence out of proportion. We, we talk about like sort of the terrible teens and things like that. One of the things that is probably going on there, what's really going on is that teens are becoming more emotionally autonomous. They're looking to their caregivers less to meet their emotional needs. And that's actually harder on their caregivers than it is on them, right? So they're, they're actually okay, but they're their parents are not okay with it and their parents are have a hard time dealing with it. And so they end up, you know, talking about kind of the emotional trials of teenagers, you know, more so than they actually are. And so going to be hormonal impact there as well, right? As kids go through puberty and the impact there. But then as you pointed out, the, the prefrontal cortex and it's the fact that it's taking some time to develop makes it harder for adolescents to control those emotional impulses. They act on things they wouldn't otherwise act on. And and that is also part of that. So whether or not they're experiencing more anger is hard to say, but I do think there's evidence that they're having a harder time controlling that anger. Mm, Really interesting. What are some early warning signs and symptoms of anger? Again, I know that everyone knows what it feels like to become angry, but I think most people only realise when they're at the 100 state. What what might people notice in their physiology or their body when they might be responding with that emotion? You know, it's it's actually, it's interesting because it's really the same set of physiology experiences as you would see from fear. It's that fight or flight response. So the elevated heart rate, some muscle tension, you know, increase in sweating, the the dry mouth that can come with that. That's ultimately because your digestive system slows down. And so you're you stop salivating. Those are some of the the really common physiological signs that you're starting to get in, get angry. I think also sort of psychologically, people tend to become a little more sort of internally me focused in those moments. You know, they start having particular patterns of thoughts that are, why is this happening to me? Why are they doing this to me? So they tend to be a little bit more self-centered in those moments as they're thinking through it. When I think about the early warning signs too, I mean, that because I think about two two ways of, there's two ways of thinking about that. There's one, like, how do you know if you're getting angry in this moment? There's, uh, there's the things we just talked about. Another way of thinking about this is how do we know if people are, 
dealing with sort of problematic anger versus normal and even healthy anger. And that's where I really think it goes back to those consequences that we talked about and being able and willing to think broadly about this and say, okay, so what are, what are some of the things that are happening to me as a result or happening to my loved ones as a result of my anger? You know, have I noticed times where I've scared my family members? Have I noticed times when I've driven dangerously or where I've turned to alcohol or cigarettes as a way of coping? Have I noticed times where I've, I've broken something? You know, how often are some of these things happening to me and and that can be a way of recognizing when it when it becomes a problem yeah so I guess if you're not told as you were saying about you and your dad you didn't ever tell him then it's very difficult for him to know how he was affecting you so top tips for anger management and how we can use that anger in productive ways I mean I was thinking about marches and protests because people are angry when they're protesting and that's obviously a very productive use of your anger are there any other ways that we can direct people or ways of calming down in that moment Mm -hmm. yeah so i i encourage people to think about anger as in some ways i like to use a fuel metaphor for anger and think about it as, you know, ultimately it's one of the ways our our brain sort of provides us energy to combat injustice, to combat unfair treatment, to encourage us and motivate us to, to fight back. And I think that, you know, it's one of the ways that our body, you know, energizes us to confront injustice. It's one of the ways that our body and our brain energizes us to combat unfair treatment. But of course, like any fuel, it can explode, right? It can be volatile. And so we need to think about how can we use this fuel in a way that is going to be productive, in a way that is going to help us. And, you know, you mentioned a great example. I think, you know, protesting is a a way in which people channel their anger into these adaptive and useful things. But there's actually a ton of those. So we can think about how artists might use it to support their art, right? Here in the United States, we saw over the last uh, two years related to the elections, we've seen lots and lots of anger, sometimes obviously leading to unhealthy and dangerous outcomes. But at the same time, we saw people registering voters in meaningful ways and getting out the vote in all of these positive ways that, that led to real significant change. And so there's, there are ways in which you can really channel anger into assertive and appropriate, healthy conversations, art and music into political action that isn't violent or aggressive. And, and like you said, into protests that aren't violent and aggressive. So there are ways that we can channel that fuel, but it's about making sure that fuel doesn't explode first or encourage us to do dangerous, unhealthy things. Mm. And just on that, do you, does the research show the same kind of trends across cultures? Are we all the same in our response? You know, it's a great question. And it's really, the the answer is both sort of fascinating and incomplete. And and I say incomplete because anger is understudied compared to a lot of other emotions. And a particular area of that is going to be some of the cross-cultural research on anger that's going to be even more incomplete than others. There's sort of two things we can take from that cross-cultural literature that I think are really interesting. One is 
if you start to look at the types of situations that lead to anger, you do see a lot of consistency in the way people interpret things, meaning it tends to be situations of like goal blocking, injustice, unfair treatment, those sorts of situations tend to be pretty consistent across cultures. The other piece is when you look at expression styles, you will see relatively consistent facial expressions and that are, are consistently interpreted across cultures. So the angry, an angry face in the United States is going to be similar to an angry face in Australia, is going to be similar to an angry face in South America, which, is, which I think is really interesting and speaks to that innate role of anger, that genetic piece. A lot of times we t- when we talk about cross-cultural work, we, we talk about what are called display rules. And display rules are some of the, I wouldn't call them unique, but some of the different rules about how you display your emotions in your particular environment. And they, they, they're going to differ by culture. They're also going to differ by home, right? So, you know, what you're allowed to do or what you're encouraged to do to express your emotions in a particular environment. And those display rules, we really pick up from our caregivers, but also, uh, you know, our environment around us and others in our environment, our peers. And that's where we learn, you know, whether or not it's appropriate to swear, whether or not it's appropriate to hit things, whether or not it's appropriate to cry. And those tend to differ a little bit by culture, including some of even more specifically some of the circumstances. So in more sort of collective societies, you're more encouraged to suppress your anger for the good of the group. In more individualistic societies, you're more encouraged to express that anger because your needs are more important than the group's needs. So those are some of the ways that that we see the culture mattering there. You mentioned goal blocking, and I think that that relates to some of the work that you've written about driving. And I wanted to ask uh, why people get angry in certain tasks like driving, whether we should actually be doing those tasks if we are already angry before we carry them out. Yeah, so goal blocking is one of the ways, one of the types of situations that we know leads to anger across cultures and frankly across species when something interferes in my achieving a particular goal. And we can even study this in infants, right? You, you put a, an object they want out of reach or behind glass or something like that and you watch how they act, right? It's, it's actually how they study anger in, in animals as well. You know, you put something they want outside of their reach and you see how they react. And it's relevant to, to driving in particular because, you know, by definition, you kind of have a goal there, right? There's almost always a place you're trying to get to when you're driving and you encounter a whole bunch of obstacles on the way to that goal. And those obstacles can be other drivers, can be red lights, they can be traffic, they can be bad weather, there's a, they can be car trouble, right? There's all of these little things that can interfere in your achieving uh, of that goal, and so in that sense, driving is sort of like the perfect scenario for, for causing anger, quote unquote, because there's so many opportunities to, to block those goals. And, you know, to your question about like, should we be doing those things if we're already in kind of an angry state? I, I think that's a, a great question. And I think part of it is how well can you control it? How well can you sort of manage it? Or are, are you someone who's going to start making bad decisions as a result of, of that anger? The other thing I would say too, is that, you know, even when we think about goals, we can think about those relatively broadly. It's not just like trying to get someplace, but even something like 
I'm trying to print this document and the printer's out of ink, right? So I had a goal and something interfered in, in that. So a lot of those sort of daily, relatively minor frustrations are really the result of that sort of goal blocking that, that we feel, right? I'm trying to take a picture and my camera app won't open or is slow or my froze or whatever, these little itty bitty things that lead to frustration. And when we experience frustration and maybe that leads to anger, what's going on on a biological level? I mean, we've spoken briefly about the amygdala and the prefrontal cortex, Mm -hmm. but in the moment, what do fMRI scans show? So, you know, it it originates or it starts with that amygdala, which sends this message to a couple of other structures in your brain. the, The two that are probably most important, one is the hypothalamus, and that initiates the fight or flight response or the sympathetic nervous system kicks in. And that's where you see that, you know, rush of adrenaline, where you see the increased heart rate, muscle tension, all of those things, hair stands on end, face gets red, uh, and so on. The other thing it does is it sends a message to what's called the facial motor nuclei, and, and it basically initiates that angry face. And what I, what I love about this, what I actually think is really fascinating about this is we obviously have control over our facial expressions. We can you know, decide to smile and, and so on. But what happens is that our facial motor nuclei, this is the part that we don't have control over. So the very, very brief instant there. So let's say that somebody says something to me and it makes me mad, but I don't want them to know that I'm mad. Before I have a chance to intentionally smile or or change my facial expression, my facial motor nuclei kick in and make that mad face. And so there's this brief, brief moment where you can see someone's anger before they have a chance to adjust it and change it. This is ultimately how one of the ways that researchers have, have pointed to catching dishonesty is to pay attention to those what they call squelched expressions, which is the person starts to make an expression and then they change it. So it's that brief, brief, brief moment where you say something and then they catch themselves. So ultimately, you know, to your question about sort of the physiological responses and whether or not they they change over time, probably the best research we have would point to sort of a strengthening of the connections that the more angry you are, the more those connections are going to be strengthened and the more likely you're going to to act that way, which really speaks to the need to try and kind of break those patterns to try and catch yourself and practice catching yourself and taking steps to, to, to change those connections over time. And can we make those changes on our own? What would the top kind of things you'd recommend? I mean, I know in DBT, for example, they recommend cold water ice dives and breathing and mindfulness. Are there some helpful tools that people can use when they are experiencing elevated anger? I would advocate, you mentioned two of them, mindfulness and deep breathing, um, I think can be really, really critical. I think counting is sort of another form of breathing or that sort of grounding approach. What are five things I can see? Those are really valuable approaches to, in some ways, I mean, ultimately what they're doing is distracting you a little bit. And and so that sort of form of distraction can work. One of the problems people, angry people often have is they only think about their anger when they're angry. And that's probably the worst time to do it because we're not thinking as clearly in those moments. So what I often encourage people to do is to either reflect back on situations when they're not angry anymore, maybe journal about it, maybe track 
mood logs are, are can be valuable in that way, or sort of think forward about things and and think about. I mean, we're pretty good actually when we stop and think about it at predicting provocations in our lives that we can we can actually think about. You know, okay, this this meeting I have in a little while, so-and-so is probably going to do or say X and it's going to bother me. And so we can sort of predict that a little bit. And if we spend time thinking about that, it, it, it helps us work through how we might want to react. It helps us prepare for that to break that cycle a little bit. You know, there, there are of course provocations that we can't anticipate, but then there are tons that we can, and we need to think about those in a he- ahead of time and try and work through those ahead of time in a way that will allow us to be more successful in those moments. Yeah, so anger is not a bad thing then. It, it's actually a, a, a tool that we can use in our communication and hopefully it will make us more self-aware and actually we can use it in really good ways. We don't need to perceive it as a negative emotion that we need to inhibit. We can just use it to develop self-awareness, I guess. The last question, because I'm aware of the time I had for you, was the extent to which you think we will have been specifically, I guess, impacted by anger due to the pandemic. I'm not sure if there's any research yet about that, because obviously we're still in it. But, um, you know, is there any research or, or maybe what your hypothesis of that research, what it will be? Yeah, you know... Actually, I think it's really fascinating, and, and there has been some research, and then there's also some I, there's some speculation that I can I can make. So, one of the things that I think we know about anger is that our mood at the time that we experience a provocation matters. And and I'm going to define mood pretty broadly here because I don't just mean our emotional state, but I also mean whether or not we're hungry, whether or not we're tired, whether or not we're physically uncomfortable, all those things sort of matter. We're more likely to to snap in those moments where we're in some sort of negative state. And what the pandemic has done there is sort of permanently put us in that negative state. We're anxious. There's a lot to be anxious about. And so it's totally understandable that we are feeling that threat and that threat is influencing our likelihood of snapping. But it's also not just the anxiety, it's the the loneliness, feeling disconnected from people, the economic challenges that many people are facing, um, the the fact that people have lost loved ones, you know, the the fact that people are angry at, already angry at maybe their neighbors or, or friends for not taking this as seriously as they should. All of those things are sort of feeding into a state that have primed us to or to be more easily frustrated in those moments. And by the way, this is relevant to the driving example as well, because when you're driving, we don't realize it because we do it often enough, but we're anxious in those moments. It's it's a dangerous activity. And so it, it elevates the, our, our that anxiety. So I think the pandemic is really influencing things that way, that we are, we're in this sort of chronically tense state and that makes us a little more likely to snap that way. We could point to things like the the election that recently happened in the USA or, or Brexit or a host of these other sort of global or cultural or societal situations that we're all experiencing is also exacerbating that stress or that tension in a way that might be subtle, but that, that influences our likelihood of snapping. The flip side, though, is, is and this is where some of the research has been done that, that is sort of interesting, is 
So there was some research that actually found that football players were less likely to snap and get into physical fights on the field when there wasn't a crowd there. And the idea being that they don't have anyone sort of encouraging them. They don't have anyone sort of motivating them to, to, to become more aggressive. And so one of the things we see is that as people are more dispersed, there's less of that emotional contagion. There's less of that going on right now that might be sort of minimizing the, the mob mentality a little bit. Now, of course, there have been plenty of mobs, at least in the U.S., so you know, it sort of depends on the, the type of situation. But we are seeing a little bit less of that, that potential for contagion. Yeah, and I mean, the first thing that comes to mind when you talk about that is social media, because I think that riles people up considerably. I mean, just as a last point, have you got anything to add about the use of social media, whether that Im- impacts our overall anger levels and whether we should be using it in a certain way? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've lots to say about this. So I'm really glad you asked, actually, because I think, you know, the, the, the nuts and bolts of why we get mad on social media are pretty consistent to why we get angry not on social media. But again, there are, there are a couple things about social media that tend to exacerbate this. So one is we are just provided with more what I call opportunities to feel, right? And so when I scroll through my Twitter feed or my Facebook feed, I, am, I encounter all of these positions, all of these articles, all this news that I wouldn't have encountered 20 years ago. In the morning, you know, I go in, I turn on my, my coffee maker, and then I pick up my phone and I scroll through Facebook. And then for five minutes, I'm sort of seeing what other people are up to in ways that I, I didn't do that 15 years ago. I have no idea what I did when I was waiting for my coffee 15 years ago, but it wasn't scroll through a, a bunch of potential provocations. So uh, that's one piece of it. Two is it's given us another sort of venue to express our, our anger. I mean, it's a, it's a new way of, of communicating when we're angry. And, and that way evolves all the time, probably faster than our ability to, to deal with it. I mean, it offers people the ability to publicly shame the, the people they're angry at. And I think that that's, that's new enough uh, or it's a, a new enough way of dealing with that. I don't think people really think through the consequences, think through what it means to do that. You know, the nature that the echo chamber that social media provides really influences the lens that we see the world through, that it becomes almost impossible to really think as clearly maybe as we once did because we're bombarded with people who who tend to feel the same way we do. And so seeing the other side, quote unquote, of, of issues becomes really challenging for people. So I think it's it's influencing anger in all of those different ways. I mean, there are way, absolutely ways to use it that are healthy. I just don't know that how often we're we're doing that, how often we're using them those ways. Well, we're probably not even aware that we're consuming content that reinforces our opinions, are we? Some people probably, but mostly you'd say no. Thank you so much for answering all these questions. I just wanted to say I'm. it's really amazing that you haven't demonised it and actually that we can use it as a tool to become self-aware of our behaviours, but also aware of other people as well. I'm really glad that you've answered them all in such depth and I really, really appreciate it. So thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much. This has been a joy. I've really enjoyed talking to you. And where can people go to read more about your work? 
So three things I'll say. One is I keep a website called alltheragescience.com. People can check that out. Um, you can follow me on social media at, at Anger Professor, and it's Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, other places. I also have a, a relatively new book called Why We Get Mad, uh, How to Use Your Anger for Positive Change. Perfect. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to today's conversation with Dr. Ryan Martin. I hope you enjoyed hearing about the evidence base, how we can begin to channel anger effectively, and how it is both healthy and helpful if managed appropriately. I will leave a link to his work in the information, and if you'd like to follow him, you can find him at, at Anger Professor. If you did enjoy the episode and want to keep up with Psych Summaries, please subscribe and follow Psych Summaries on Instagram. Thanks so much for listening. I'll see you next time.